today is Palm Sunday. We don't do the procession of palms. <laughs> We'd have to buy a lot of palms, I think, for the kids in this church. That's usually what they do. <laughs> um, so today what we're going to be looking at is the triumphal entry, as it's called. Now, some of you may have a moment of deja vu, because I'm going to preach uh, from triumphal entry in Mark. And I, I know, you know, the 72 sermons I did on Mark when I, when I opened as the pastor of this church, this is going to seem like a little deja vu. But what I like about days like this, where we emphasize specific things in Jesus's life, is you, you come to realize just uh, how dynamic the Gospels are. Because the triumphal entry is in each of the Gospels, and yet it, it is used to emphasize completely different things. Last year, we looked at John and the fact that the triumphal entry was the response of people to Jesus raising Lazarus, that the whole thing sprung out of that event in John 11. Uh, this year, what we're going to do is we're going to return to Mark. Um, and I did this section in, in actually November of 2019. But we're going to return there, and we're going to look at how it fits in Mark's gospel and what he's trying to teach us about the Lord Jesus and about this, this event that occurred and how he uses it to emphasize very specific things. That, that it's the same event used in different ways to teach us different things. So today what we're going to do is we're going to consider it. We're going to turn to Mark chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 46. We're going to start in 1046. I'm actually just going to read through to chapter 11, verse 11. This is, this is the word of the Lord. Now, they, as they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples in a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you. And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Now, <laughs> now between those two events, between what just happened and that now, actually is several days. But that's not what Mark does. Mark makes it seem as if the next thing that happens is that they go up to Jerusalem. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately, as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Now, untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told him what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes. In the name of the Lord, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, 
As it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this, the story of your son, Lord, entering Jerusalem upon his Passion Week. We pray, Lord, that as we consider the details of this story, that we would learn what it means to receive the Lord Jesus and what it means to reject the Lord Jesus, that we ourselves, Lord, may be filled with cries for mercy, that we may be filled with shouts of Hosanna, that we may be filled, Lord, with humility and with faith. I pray, Lord, as we consider these words now, that you would open our hearts and our minds and our ears, and that you would, Lord, deliver us again, as you always do. In Jesus' name, and amen. Now, there is a simple fact that Jesus incarnates history. And and this this sometimes is very difficult for us to understand. But the, the events that occurred in the Old Testament that are recorded for us, Jesus lives them. He shows us that what all along that they were talking about is him. He is the point. He is the, he is the reason that we have donkeys. He is the reason that there is Jerusalem. He is the reason that Jehu, the, the former king of Israel, rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. And, and if you go back and you look at those events, is Jehu a real person? Was there really a donkey? Is there really the city of Jerusalem? So all of these things that are real, that exist in the real world, are, 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 exist because Jesus gives them meaning. They exist so that we can understand him. There are donkeys so that we can understand what it means for the living God to ride on a donkey. That's, the, that's why they exist. And when you, when you come to stories like this one, it is hard to grab onto one thing in, in all of the things here and say, oh, this, this is the thing from the Old Testament that he's doing here. Um, I, I actually had to cut like 18 things because it, it, every verse, it's like you go verse by verse, it's full of stories from the history of Israel. And what Jesus does in his life is live it. He lives the history of Israel. He, he is Israel. He brings it to life in himself, showing forth both the power of God who controls the history of Israel, as well as the humility of God who walks among his people. This is your God. This is the God who both controls the story and and lives in the story. Jesus' life and ministry are as important as his death and resurrection. And and, and it's a corrective to our time where we focus so much on salvation and so much on the death of Jesus and the the empty tomb and the the cross. We, We forget that he lived, lived, and he walked, and he talked, and he spoke to people, and listened to people, and touched people, and ate things, and didn't eat things. And he cursed some people and blessed some people. And all of those things that he was doing, he was doing for a reason. We, we cannot emphasize one aspect of, of the whole Christological, uh, theological understanding of Jesus. We can't grab onto one of it as the thing. We need all of it. We need the life of Jesus because we need life. He teaches us the way. It says in Deuteronomy 8.6, we read this. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. Therefore, Jesus says in John 14.6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You can go whatever way you like, and no other way will lead to the Father except Jesus. You can try as hard as you can to live a perfect life. You can try as hard as you can to live a life that glorifies God. And if it's any other way than Jesus, you're never going to see the Father. Never. Jesus is the one who fulfilled Deuteronomy 8.6. This is what I'm talking about. What is it? 
Walk in his way and fear him. Who did it? Jesus did it. So this isn't just a commandment that God gives us in Deuteronomy. He's describing the life of a person. Jesus fears the Lord. Jesus obeys his father. This obedience and fear is what he demonstrated throughout his life, throughout his ministry, and it's what he calls us to. He doesn't say come, right, and figure out as best you can the way to the Father based on what I've just told you. He doesn't say here, go and figure this out, and and, and as best you can, figure out the way to heaven. He says, come this way. Come to me. Follow me. Do as I do. Speak as I speak. Act as I act. And then we have four Gospels showing us exactly what he said and did. Now, there are two stories in which Christ heals blind men. And they bookend the Lord's teaching on discipleship that begins in the middle of Mark chapter 8 and ends at the close of Mark chapter 10. These chapters are Jesus' teaching us what it means to be a disciple. And it's bookended by stories of him healing blind people. Now, that is a very important detail. Throughout this section, the disciples of Christ proved themselves to be physically able to see, but spiritually blind to who and what Christ is. Spiritually blind to Christ's self-revelation. He keeps telling them, I'm going to go up to Jerusalem, and they're going to kill me. (laughs) And, And the disciples are like, what? What? Where are we going? What are we doing? Why? They can't see it for looking. And so Jesus continually heals blind, physically blind people because he's trying, right? Hello, hello, I heal blind people. If you're blind, come to me and I will heal you. And, and this isn't just a spiritual truth. This is a phys- there's physical reality to it. But it doesn't help us if we can physically see but are spiritually blind, right? There, there is one kind of blindness that leads to hell, and it's not physical blindness. It's spiritual blindness. Mark is quite clear that Bartimaeus is a model disciple, which Christ has been describing to his followers since the middle of chapter 8, and we are meant to imitate him. So let's turn to chapter 10 and chapter 11 and learn what true discipleship is about. That's what we're looking at here. What is a true disciple? Well, he shows us in Bartimaeus, and then he concludes this whole section with the triumphal entry. The triumphal entry is like the epilogue to his teaching on discipleship. You want to be a disciple? Act like Bartimaeus. Okay. And then just as a little extra extracurricular activity, here's the triumphal entry, and this is how you receive a king. This is how you follow a king. This is how you obey a king. This is how you live with the king. So turn with me. Mark chapter 10, verse 46. It says, And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus... A blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside, and when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Now, the crowd plays no role in this particular story, but is a detail signifying that many pilgrims were going up to Jerusalem as the custom of Passover. Imagine a road where there are a lot of travelers. This is the way that you have to go, right? This is the way that we all go up to Jerusalem to worship God. And so they think they're on the right way, the right path. Now, Jericho is 800 feet below sea level. It's actually the lowest city in the world. Jerusalem is 3,000 feet above sea level. So imagine that. You're starting at 800 feet below sea level, and you're ascending to 3,000 feet above sea level. Climbing from Jericho to Jerusalem is only slightly lower than climbing Mount Sai here in Washington State, if you've ever done it. Big Sai, not Little Sai. Little Sai's for chumps. 
Big Si, that's a hike. If you want to know what it's like, what they're doing, imagine you have to climb Mount Si and then go to church. Right? That's the ascent to Jerusalem. Now, if, for those of you who are not from Washington, Mount Diablo in California is this high. If you start at the bottom of Diablo and you go to the top, it's the same elevation change. Pilgrims, on their way from Galilee, would make the long climb to the Mount of Olives, the, and then what you do is you come up like you usually do when you're hiking up a huge amount of uh, feet. You, you come to this bluff where you can now look upon the city of God. You, you climb, 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 and usually when you get to the top of a hill, what do you see? Vistas. Well, this vista is the city of Jerusalem in all of its glory, the great city of God. Now, the pilgrims come several times a year to celebrate the stories of their people and their God. That's what these uh, holidays are all about. They're not just rituals. They're actually in reenacting and in and, 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 um, and living parable the stories of their people. That's what Passover is all about. And here Jesus is reliving the history of Israel as well. Israel's stories of hope, Israel's stories of forgiveness, of sacrifice and atonement and victory and fellowship, that's what we're going to see here. He's, re- he's going to now relive a whole bunch of stories in one day. So who are these characters that we're dealing with here? Well, it, as it explains to us, the word bar means the son of. So Bartimaeus means the son of Timaeus. Now here things get really interesting. Timaeus derives from the Greek word time. Now, that's a word we all know. But in Greek, in biblical Greek, its original meaning was something that is dear, valuable, or honorable. That's why they call time time. (laughs) It's very precious. It's very valuable. The verb form means to honor, to revere, to prize highly, or to value something. So both the verb and its noun speak of an intimate knowledge of the thing assessed, an intimate knowledge of the item's usefulness relative to the economy at large. Now, is his name Bartimaeus an accident? Jesus is walking along, and he's got the world on his shoulders, and he's going up to Jerusalem to enact <laughs> the Passover in, in himself. And here he comes along, the na- right? somebody who's the son of someone precious, someone whose value is known. Bartimaeus is the son of one highly prized, the son of one who Christ knows intimately, and he knows Bartimaeus' value. That's what we're being told. Bartimaeus is taken up into Christ's retelling of Israel's history, representing the elect children of Israel, chosen and precious to God. He is an elect son sitting there on the road. He's precious. Why? We we're not told that. We're not told anything about this guy. He's sitting, how long has he been sitting there? How long has he been blind? Was he born blind? Did he become blind? He says, restore my sight. That tells us a little something. But we don't know anything other than he was the son of someone precious to the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, I can't... This is, you want to you be somebody in history? Be precious in the sight of Christ. Right? Who cares about this guy other than he's the one sitting there when Jesus walks by and, and is pulled into the story. Being pulled into the story is what makes his name memorable. Being pulled into the story is, is what makes this nobody somebody. Now, Joshua is Jesus' Hebrew name. And many of us from Sunday school remember that Joshua means God saves. So if, if there is a new Joshua who's going to reconquer the land, where else is he going to start but Jericho? Jericho, as you remember, is the first city that Israel conquered when they came into the land under the original Joshua. And here, on the triumphal entry, Jesus starts at Jericho. Now, Jericho was the first city Israel conquered, but, but then also Bartimaeus mentions Nazareth. He mentions Jesus' hometown. Right? It mentions here that he understood that this was Jesus from Nazareth. And now that's a physical place in Palestine. 
This is coupled with the phrase son of David, which is a metaphysical title. Okay? In the generalist sense, Jesus is the son of David. But the son of David is a title. So he takes his name, Jesus of Nazareth, a place that we can actually go to in Palestine, a physical place. Historically, we know it's there. Archaeologically, we know it's there. And, and he takes that and couples it with this metaphysical title for the Messiah. Yahweh says to David, this is where the phrase comes from in 2 Samuel 7.16, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This is a promise that God makes to David. The son of David is this messianic title that they then are waiting and waiting and waiting for. So he recognizes that this guy from Nazareth, right, you can, an address that you can go to, is actually the, the son of David, the Messiah of the Lord. Isaiah 11.10, In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Ezekiel 34, 23-24, And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. So there's all this promise involved in this title. And this blind man, physically blind, is sitting there begging. And then he says, oh, that's Jesus from Nazareth? Oh, that's the son of David. That's the Messiah. That is the one that we've been waiting to to come to save us from everything that has befallen us. Now, how does this blind man recognize him? Is it Jesus' haircut? (laughs) Man, look at that robe. That guy's looking suave. He's the king of something. No. what? No, it's what Jesus is doing, and it's how he's doing it. So the blind man gets who this person is. Bartimaeus, though he is blind, sees what the disciples do not see. He may be physically blind, but he, he has spiritual eyes, spiritual discernment. He cries out, calling to the son of David, for mercy. He understands what the the son of David is for. All the other Jews who don't get who Jesus is are waiting for somebody who's going to come in golden armor and start slaughtering Romans. This guy gets who this person from Nazareth is, and the the thing that he wants isn't, hey, go kill those Romans over there. The thing that he, he gets what the Messiah is about, show me mercy. His discernment is deep. His discernment is wide. And, 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 and how else would this man come by these things if it's not for the grace of God? Where did this gift that he has come from? The people who are sitting in Moses' seat don't recognize him. The people who are eating and drinking with him don't recognize him. But the blind man sitting on the road recognizes him. And, and this, here we go again, incarnating the word of God. He's living the very word of God. Hosea chapter 3, verse 5. Hosea chapter 3, verse 5. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. They will come. And you know what they'll want? They're not going to want to slaughter Gentiles. They're going to want the Lord's goodness. Bartimaeus is coming to the goodness of David. King David, the son of God. He gets who this dude from Nazareth is. 
But Bartimaeus is not highly valued by his brothers in Israel. They do not see what he sees. All they see is a man shouting in the middle of the street, distracting their very important teacher, distracting them from their very important mission. And it says in Mark chapter 10, verse 48, And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent, but he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Now those who rebuked Bartimaeus obviously regarded his shouting as annoying. Shut up. Shut up. Stop it. What is this, right? You're in the car. You want me to pull this car over, Bartimaeus? They're hardened to the beggars sitting there disrupting the travelers by the city gates. They don't like this guy. They don't like his crying out. They don't like they're distracting them. They don't like that he's trying to get to their master. It's their master, right? When earlier we saw people, Jesus, we tried to stop them. Okay, we're here for you, buddy. We're protecting you. We're protecting you from these, this rabble. Now, Bartimaeus recognizes Jesus as the Messiah, but these folks rebuke him and attempt to silence him using the very same words that Jesus uses to the evil spirits. Be silent, Jesus said to them. They don't recognize what spirit Bartimaeus is of because they're spiritually blind. They can't tell the difference. They think this guy is possessed with a demon, and they want to be just like their Lord Jesus, and they're going to silence him, this madman on the road screaming out at them, just like Jesus silenced those other ones. The pilgrims do not agree with Jesus what spirit Bartimaeus is of. The other travelers won't cast out his spirit. And and what spirit is causing him to praise Jesus? You only praise Jesus what? If you have whose spirit? He's walking by and they're like, wow, he he recognizes who he is. That's amazing. That must be the spirit of God. But they have an entirely different agenda. They have an entirely different plan. And they have an entirely different understanding. It is exactly what it is that Jesus is going to provide them. Mercy? Goodness? No way. Power. I wonder who's going to be greatest, me or you? Now, Bartimaeus, what does he do? Does he sit down and does he shut up? Does he play the victim card? Oh, how dare you? Oh, how dare you treat me this way? I'm blind. No, he cries out all the louder. He cries and cries, and he will not be shut up. They will not put him down. Like Athanasius, he is contra mundum. He is against the world. Let the world try to silence me. Let these people try to silence me. I can't even see who's telling me to be quiet, and I don't care because that's Jesus of Nazareth, and if I don't say something now, he will get away. What's he going to do? Chase him down the road? He's blind. This is his moment, and he sees it, though he is blind, as his moment, and he will not be silenced. Now, that... It's quite different from the church in our own day. But we will be silenced. We will be silenced. You're going to shout? Well, it's very undignified to shout louder than you. And so I'm going to just be quiet now. Think of the passion. Think of the urgency that Bartimaeus has. He will not be silenced. He will shout down. Think there's more of them than there are, right? There's more people telling him to be quiet. And and, and he will not be outdone. He will not shut up. He will not sit down. And this is a lesson for us. This is what a disciple of Christ is like. We will proclaim, this is Christ. We will cry out for mercy, and the world shall not silence us. It shall not. And if you think that's undignified, if you think that isn't nice, then we are not talking about the same thing. The voice of one 
crying out to Christ is stronger and louder than the voice of the rabble, the voice of the crowd. He will not be deterred. He will not be silenced. He will not be shut down. And he gets the Lord's attention. He does not remain silent. He shouts and shouts and shouts, and the Lord heeds his shouts. Mark chapter 10, verse 49 through 50. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. Now, Jesus' lordship is decisive and immediate. He doesn't care what his people are saying. He doesn't care that his followers are telling the man to be silent. He said, no, 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 bring him here to me. He is in control of this situation, not his followers. He's headed to his ultimate showdown, to his rejection and ultimate death. He knows it. He's been telling everyone this is what he's going to do. Think how distracted he is. He's wandering there on the road, and he is not so lost in his own concerns. He is not so lost in his own thoughts that he doesn't hear the cries of mercy coming from the side of the road. As I said earlier, he's carrying literally the weight of the world on his back, and he still has time for the man crying out. This is your Lord. This is your King. This is your God. How can he possibly hear me when, when, when all of those saints in Ukraine are, are, are crying out to him and praying? How, when there's all these people crying out and praying, when he has the weight of the world on his shoulders, how is he ever going to hear me? And here is Jesus showing you what the Lord is like. I am not so concerned that I cannot hear your cries. I hear them, and I will respond to them. This is a calling story. In Mark chapter 2, verse 17, Jesus says quite clearly, he came to call sinners. He called Peter and the sons of thunder in Mark chapter 1. He called Levi in Mark 2. The gospel proclamation is the call to the nations to come, come to me. Right? You're crying out to me, you get who I am, come to me then. Come here. It says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now that's some deep metaphysical waters, isn't it? A holy nation of Bartimaeus's who are known, whose value is known and precious, right? It says right here, we're a nation of Bartimaeus. He knows our value. Well, what value could I possibly have, we say in humility? He says, I know. Come. Furthermore, Jesus is literally, quite literally, calling Bartimaeus out of darkness, of physical blindness, into the light. And lo and behold, what's the first thing he's going to see? He's calling him to the light out of darkness. And what's the first thing Bartimaeus is going to see? This is a living parable. This is how the Bible works. This is not just some stories. This is not just theology. Now, the phrase, take heart, is often misinterpreted as merely, cheer up, son. But it means, take courage, have courage. Now, his disciples (laughs) have been around Jesus long enough to know that this man who's now approaching Jesus, they need to tell him to not be afraid. I, I, this is a very interesting thing. Okay, why, why, would he, why, why would he be afraid? Well, they know Jesus, right? This says a lot about what, what they're expecting from him at this moment. Oh, Jesus is doing something off script. I mean, Jesus hasn't done anything on script, according to them, since chapter 2. But now they're like, okay, whoa, dude, I don't know what's going to happen, but don't be afraid. 
Now, can you imagine being someone who wants to see Jesus and the thing that they tell you before you see him is don't be afraid? What? What did you just say? And it reminds me of Adam being told in the garden to guard and keep it. And, and, and I like, in hindsight, I, as soon as God goes away, I'm like, okay, I'll do it. And then you're like, guard it from what? I mean, the buffalo all seem very happy and nice. I mean, the moose seems very blasé. What am I guarding it from? When we approach the Lord Jesus, we have to be reminded, right, of who we're actually approaching. And this part, I think the disciples would get at least, right? Now, what is the nature of their fear? It doesn't tell us. But they understand that this man ought to be a little afraid. It says in Mark chapter 6, verse 49 and 50, this is where they learned about this. This is where they were instructed, way back in Mark chapter 6. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. This is their experience talking. If you're going to come close to this guy, you've got to be encouraged. Now, you know, this is also an echo of back in Joshua chapter 10, verse 25 there. It says, Jesus, or Joshua said to Israel, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies amongst whom you fight. This is what the Lord and the Lord's followers are constantly having. You want to come near him? Come near him. But we're going to just say, don't be afraid. And people ought to actually stop and think about that for a second. Why would we fear? Now, I like that Bartimaeus doesn't say anything. He gets it. He gets who this is that he's talking to. Now, upon hearing this, Bartimaeus throws off his cloak. Now, we've been told that this is a blind beggar. Now, arguably... Knowing something of the culture, the cloak is the only thing that he owns. He only owns this cloak. And what does he do? Does he take it with him or does he throw it off? He throws it off. It's most likely that it's his only earthly possession. So unlike the rich young ruler, Bartimaeus leaves everything to come to Christ. <laughs> right? If I'm one of the disciples, like, dude, it's your only thing. Just, just bring it. He didn't say throw it off. But he intuitively understands what is required of someone who's going to come to Jesus. It means throwing off everything else. The, the sight that this blind man has is unbelievable. It's shocking what, how he sees and understands and perceives who it is that he's talking to. Um, the, the rich young ruler, hey, get rid of all that stuff and Come. He doesn't even have to say that to Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus gets it. Oh, if I'm going to go, I'm going to throw off all my earthly possessions. Mark chapter 10, verse 51 to 52. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. What do you want me to do for you? That's his question. What can I do for you? This is the same question Jesus asked John and James, the sons of thunder, who wanted position and rank in Christ's kingdom. Remember? They come to me and say, what can I do for you? This is, how, this, is his, this is how he operates. What can I do for you? 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 It doesn't matter if you're two guys looking for power and rank. It doesn't matter if you're a blind man on the road. He says the same thing. What can I do for you? But Bartimaeus claims nothing for himself except of his own need. That's what he says. He says, you know, he's not asking for position. He's not asking for anything other than to be healed. He calls him rabbi, which is teacher. 
Now, the word translated as teacher here in this particular instance is a term of address that claims the rabbi as one's own teacher. It's different than, you know, this is one of the things when they translate. There are differences between these words. Every time the word rabbi appears, it's not the same word for rabbi. This is only one of two times where the word is used this way, where it's actually, he doesn't say, hey, teacher. He says, my teacher. Again, why? Where did this come from? Why is he saying, why is he taking possession of Christ? His own followers don't talk about him this way. The only one who calls him this is Mary in John chapter 20, verse 16, after he's resurrected. She says, my teacher. So he already has that kind of faith in him. He already has that kind of relationship with Jesus, where he, as soon as he comes to his place, he says, my teacher, my teacher. Bartimaeus asks him, let me have sight equal to my insight. What he wants is he wants Jesus to teach his physical eyes what his, the eyes of his heart can already do. My heart already sees. Now make my eyes see. What I want is to make my sight like my insight. What I want is for you to show me what I already perceive. Now the blind man has faith that works, a faith that perseveres. Jesus' work for, for Jesus' work to be effectual, it requires faith. Faith is operative. Faith works. Faith accomplishes. Faith consists, not least, in recognizing who Jesus is and trusting that he alone has the power to rescue, to tame, and to heal us. He believes it. Bartimaeus immediately receives what he asked for. The first thing the man sees is the Lord Jesus. He has come from darkness to the true light. What a glorious gift. Imagine, it's not, the first thing he sees isn't just like a tree. The first thing he sees isn't just the temple. The first thing he sees isn't a building. The first thing he sees is Jesus himself. Now, that's a prize worth all that tr- turmoil, all that trouble. And, and, and when you go from the darkness of death, the, when you open your eyes on the other side, what's the first thing you're going to see? We're all going to be Bartimaeus. We are going to open our eyes, and the first thing that we're going to see, and to a certain extent the only thing we're going to see after that, is the Lord Jesus, because he will be the light that we see by. So what is it like to be a disciple? Well, it's like going from darkness to light. It's like opening your eyes for the first time and seeing Jesus. Now, what Jesus then does is he calls him to follow me, follow me on the way. Come, come this way. Now, the way is one of the earliest designations for the Christian faith. In Acts chapter 9, verse 2, it's called the way. It's used by Jews and secular people. It's both positive and negative assessment. Oh, the way, the way. We've heard of the way. That, oh, you guys are the people of the way. The way, as I said in the beginning, is fear and obedience of God. Jesus is the way, which is why when Jesus, he actually, what he actually says, go your way. Go your way. And then it tells us that he go. what does he do? He follows Jesus on the way. So Bartimaeus' way is Jesus. And I love this. Because I guarantee you right now, when I was reading this, I was like, if Jesus said to me, go your own way, would, the, would it naturally be him? I'd be like, oh, go, in, go my way? Oh, my way. Oh, okay. Well, I'm going to go home now, and I'm going to drink a beer and read a book and hang out. Right? I mean, in our flesh, how would we, oh, you're going to, I can do what, I can go my way? Oh. And Bartimaeus, what does he do? 
Bartimaeus, go your way. And and it doesn't give us this complicated explanation where it's like, well, Bartimaeus' way equals Jesus' way. It's just there in the story. Do you want to be a disciple? Do you want to follow him? Then what, what, when he says to you, go your way, the automatic thing that ought to happen is you follow him. What he wants is to align the affections of your heart and the desires of your heart with the way that he is going. So that no matter what, when we say, go your way, it's him. <laughs> your way equals him. That's the point. Okay. We could just stop here, right? We could, but no, that's not Mark. Mark is an odd duck. Mark is a beautifully odd duck. What a weird guy. When he writes this story, now he's going to jump from this directly to the triumphal entry and then have one of the weirdest endings of the triumphal entry in all of the Gospels. And there's a ton that we can say, right? And this is how the Palm Sunday always goes. I can talk about donkeys. I can talk about palms. Bethany is the city of palms. I can talk about Jehu on the donkey. And I can talk about the prophecy in Genesis, that way back in Genesis. Okay? In 49, when Israel is talking to his children, he says, Judah will ride on a donkey. And even in Genesis, they're talking about the king from Judah riding on a donkey. I can go into all of that we can get into the fact that they're throwing their clothes down in front of them. Because usually when you're really excited, you take your clothes off and throw them in front of someone to walk on. Right? They just have this, what kind of fervor here? Well, it's a, they're representing throwing themselves down in front of him. So, so Mark, through this whole thing, okay, this is what a true disciple looks like, Bartimaeus. Now, just as an epilogue, let me give you another demonstration of a crowd throwing themselves down in front of Jesus, praising Jesus. Hosanna, what does Hosanna mean? It means save us God now. That's what the phrase means. Jesus is on this donkey that's never been ridden because it, it right, just like sacrifices had never been, never had, had, had never been used in farm work. The donkey that's going to carry him in has never been used any other way, right? There's all kinds of stuff here. What did I say at the beginning? He's like, here, let me just... Um, let's take some stuff from the Old Testament. Nielsen's, how about you give us something? Schmitz, how about you give us How about everybody just toss out something from the Old Testament and Jesus would be like, here, let me cram it into this one event in my life. Because that's what it feels like. You're like, you know, I was going to walk you through it, and you're like, flip, 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 flip. Like, this is, is he summarizing the entire Old Testament in one day? Yes. And that's what he did every day. They break out in song. Why are they breaking out in song? Well, it's going into Passover week. They're waiting for the son of David. So they sing the Hillel songs, which is what you sing during Passover. There's all this recognition of who he is and what he's doing. It's exhausting even talking about it. Right? If you go, and I haven't even mentioned Zechariah yet. Go home and read Zechariah. Read the whole thing, or just chapter 9, and you're like, man, he, and now he's just going to relive a whole book of the Bible while he's, right? We're going to toss in this and that and this and that, and we're going to throw in Zechariah on the top. And most of you, I think, like the first time I ever heard of that book, thinking, has he got that name right? Is there really a Zechariah? Is there a Zechariah in the Bible? There is. It's chock-a-block full of types and shadows. And how does it end? Mark 11, 11. And he entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Can you imagine a more anticlimactic ending to a story? You're going to go from healing blind people to like 
having this ruckus party right out in the street and at the city gate. So he came in, he looked around, it was late, so he went home. So what is Mark getting at? What's the point of this? Jesus goes directly to the temple. Of course he does. It's his father's house, right? When they couldn't find him as a little child, where did he go? He went to the temple, his father's house. Bartimaeus, would he be shut up? Would they shut up Bartimaeus? Did they get him to be quiet? Did they shut him down? All these people on the street, right? They all get who he, they, they get what's going on. Because it, it, it's not the same crowd later shouting for him to be crucified. It's not. This crowd, if you read in John, if you read Matthew, I know people say that. It's not the same crowd, though. This crowd has a, a comprehension of who Jesus is. But, but this whole time when they're entering in, it's as close as they're going to get to that kingdom that they're looking for. And I would be a little startled if I'm singing and singing and my cloak is full of dirt now and it's got hoof marks on it because I threw it down in front of him. I got this palm branch and my arms are tired. And then we get to the temple and we're like, where are you going? I thought we were just getting started. This is the, this is the week of Passover. Let's just keep this baby going. Right? We got more songs we can sing. We got more palm branches. Let's throw the doors open and receive the king. Let's receive the Lord. But that's not what happens. He has come too late to save it. He's come too late to save it. It's too late. If, if you read all of the Gospel of Mark, everywhere he goes, he's trying to get them to correct their ways. He's trying to get them to understand who he is. Every time he sees Jerusalem, he starts weeping because he knows what's coming. It says in Luke 11, or, or Luke 9:51, this famous phrase that is used of Jesus, that he set his face towards Jerusalem. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean he's just determined to go there? Well, you start looking into that phrase, and things get really weird. It turns out, all along, he wasn't setting his face to go there because he was really excited about it. He's setting his face to go there, and there's only two other times where people set their face towards something. Only one other time where someone sets their face towards Jerusalem like he has done. There's only one other person who's done it. 2 Kings chapter 12, verse 17. At that time, Haziel, king of Syria, set his face to go up against Jerusalem. He's walking around Israel, and he says, you know what? It's time for the show to end. And I am now not just determined to go up there to fulfill what my father said. I am determined to go up there and burn the place to the ground. And he gets there, and what, what happens, right? All this excitement at the gate, they get to the church, they get to the temple, they get to the place where there should be all this worship, and it's too late. And that's what Mark is, he came, they did not receive him. Bartimaeus received him, and what did Bartimaeus receive in return? The temple doesn't receive him, they may receive him at the gate, but by the time he gets to the temple, it's too late. Israel has rejected him, and he's entering now into the week, not of, his, of their accepting him, but of their ultimate rejection of him. And in this story, you have two ways of receiving the king. And if you receive him, you receive the one who sent him. That was what was read for us today. If you receive one sent in his name, you receive him. If you receive him, you, re you receive the one who sent him. Bartimaeus receives him, and he will not be quiet. The temple does not. Now, and, and here, this is... Now, does he, does he get out his two sticks and start rubbing it? Like, okay, we're going to burn this baby to the ground. Hey, Peter, get some paper. Somebody get some straw. 
Let's burn this baby down. No. No. What does he do? He lives the most exciting week recorded in human history, crowns the whole thing with his own execution, and then comes out of the ground and walks around as a witness of what God is going to do now. Right? And then does he burn it to the ground? Don't you remember that in Acts, that's what aren't we going to bring in the kingdom of God now? He says, boys, 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 come on. No, what we're going to do is build an ark. That's what we're going to do. We're going to build an ark, and we're going to save as many of these people as possible because I have set my face. I've set my face. This place is going down. And, and, and <laughs> generation later in AD 79, what, what, lo and behold, something worse than the Assyrians come and burn the place to the ground, literally. They burned it so badly that they removed the, the stones at the bottom of the temple and the sheets of gold in between because everything had melted and flowed down. And they took out the sheets of gold from between the stones and they laid them on a wagon, sewed salt into the ground, and left. Now, why? Because he came too late. They did not receive him. They rejected him. And even in, in his recognition of this, there's two-generation practically delay. Why? Because he wanted to build an ark to save people. Now, what would you have done? Right? You, you own, say, hypothetically, you own a vineyard. You, you send it out to people. They're growing stuff, fruit there for you. You're like, okay, um, son. No, 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 not my son yet. No, servant, servant, go and get my fruit from the vineyard. And they kill him. Oh, okay, well, uh, okay, servant number two, <laughs> you go, you go get my fruit. What do they do to him? They beat him and send him back. And they keep killing and beating all your servants. Then you're like, okay, well, certainly they will respect my son. So they send the son, and what do they do to the son? Now, wouldn't you go and burn that place to the ground? Wouldn't you? I, I mean, really? No, would you go there and build an ark there so that you could save some of them? Do you want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? That's what this story is asking. Do you want to? Okay, you want to. All right, here's what you got to do. You have to have spiritual discernment and understand that this man from Nazareth wasn't just a man from Nazareth. That this man isn't going to just fulfill whatever plans you have for this world. This man will give you mercy. This man will give you goodness. This man will deliver you and heal you and strengthen you and, and, and take you into his story because what you will find when you get to him is that you're already precious in his sight. He already knows you. And when you receive him, you receive the Father. You, see, you receive the kingdom. You receive a people. You receive baptism. You receive sanctification and eventually glorification. You receive it all. Or you can shut the doors. Right? You can see him and hear, uh, there, it's him. Oh, no, no, I'm, the world and my circumstances are shouting you down, and so I'm just going to be silent. I'm told it's not cool to, to, to shout so loud because it's not very nice. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to be silent. We let ourselves be silenced, unlike Bartimaeus. And what happens to those people who do? They, Jesus comes and it's too late to save them. He's coming back. <laughs> He's coming back. You realize. We all need to realize. The world needs to realize. What he did once, right, just like he, right, he, all these types and shadows here, you go, what am I going to do? He told us chapter after chapter through the whole Old Testament, and then he come and he actually did it. And now he says he's going to come back. And is, when he comes back, if he walked in the room on last Tuesday afternoon, would he have found the doors open or shut? Would he, would he have found you shouting out loud for deliverance? Or would he be like, well, this is too late, let's go to Bethany. 
What's the triumphal entry about? It's about the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ fulfilled every single word, every promise, every syllable of the Old Testament. And he says, there's no other way but me. There's no other hope but me. There's no other life but me. There's no other way to the Father but through me. And we either throw the doors open to that, or when he comes back, it's going to be too late. Don't wait until he comes back. Be like Bartimaeus. Paul says it. As long as it's called today, what are we supposed to do? As long as it's today, repent of your sins, cry out to the Lord. And what will he do? Just like Bartimaeus, he will heal you. He will give you insight equal to your sight. Or he'll give you something equal to your insight. You, you, you will have this insight. And what you'll be able to see is like, oh, you know what? These circumstances aren't the end. I'll be able to actually see what's going on in the world and understand it and know that I'm not for this world alone, but another world. And this is the hope. This is the power. This is the strength that the people of God need. need. Don't be shouted down. Don't wait until tomorrow. Don't put off what, what, what must be done today. Don't be silenced Don't be distracted. Turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Cry out to him, and you will find a ready ear. Amen. Father, we thank you so much for your mercy and kindness and goodness to us. We thank you, Lord, that you fulfilled every promise of the Old Testament, that you, Lord, fulfilled every law of the Old Testament on our behalf, Lord, that you received all the wrath of God that was meant for us. We thank you, Lord, that these things are not merely stories, that they are not metaphysical truths, that they are not, Lord God, mere theology. You are the living God. You are here with us now. And I pray that we, like Bartimaeus, would not wait, but that we would grab onto you while you are are here to be held, that we would cry out to you while you are here to hear us, that we would not wait, but that we, with all our heart, all our mind, all our strength, pursue you and follow you, and may our way be your way. Amen.